Hello there, Luke Wright here. We're bringing you the Norwich Poetry Club podcast. We are now five months old and it's all going rather well. Uh, this month we welcome Rian Edwards to Norwich. Rian is one of those wonderful poets who is equally comfortable on the page or stage. A stalwart of the London scene since 2003, she was soon snapped up by a tall outhouse for a pamphlet. That pamphlet was called Parade the Fib and it won the PBS Pamphlet Choice Award for summer 2008 and launched what will no doubt be a glittering career as a page poem. Rian's set is coming up very soon, complete with a couple of ukulele songs. But first, I'm delighted to present Hannah Walker. Hannah is one other graduate of the 2008-9 Escalator Live Literature Scheme developed by our media partners, Writers' Centre Norwich. Hannah is currently working on her debut solo show, which will be going north of the border in August for the Edinburgh Fringe. Here's Hannah. I say to myself that I am art. I say to myself that my memory is a list box where I keep importance and not a manky crumb pod for leftover crusts of emotional toast. But still, at breakfast, in the shower, on the way to work, the list bulks out the pod box and no amount of sit-ups will make them thin. Pizza, teenaged, 1991. Girls with calves smooth as bowling pins do dance routines to ace of bass. All that she wants is another baby. I think that I'm unusual. And I wear my scrunchie like a coronet of hormones. In maths, I sweat for smulch in the caretaker's cupboard. I have no mobile, I know no poetry, and I mine my complexion in spotlight search of beauty self. I care if I blush when my bra strap is pinged. I care enough to eat only oranges for nine weeks while the won't lick their lips boys wolf donuts. 1993. Lee and I do things to the dark that make it light. And the reasons for parents say no things seem to be spanner keys to a radiator that never lets off steam. I strut down streets, my breasts out saying excuses, excuses, excuses for people who don't know how to live their lives properly. I sleep and dream conversational philosophies. I will never look like, I will never be like, I will never grow like you in your swivel-chaired, high-heeled routine. And then the first jab, like, ice to an arsehole and I seethe so succinctly I make bats ears bleed. I seethe with wine bottles up my coat sleeves. I see that adults who insist on supper meetings and everything so zebra crossing on a Thursday holding hands with a little sister, parent, child, please me. But Lee in a club gets me dancing and on the drugs that he gives me I see eyelid trees and starlings with snapback chins. The whole no front door key thing didn't really matter. I was locked in and until Rachel found me half out the cat flap, everything was cream. The wine pint spilt on CD sleeves, the we don't eat, we don't sleep, we only smoke weed routine through university until I make a boy with split glass feelings of frame being. That scene is best cack blanked, like 
a socially awkward accident where you mean well until you leave and you kiss everybody on the cheek in case they think you're mean and the cleaning and the cleaning and the shower routine and the suds slip into your navel and you, you can't help but think about the reconciliation procedure between the ego and the ego and the way that that boy tore you like a tissue on a shoe behind a skip and you told everyone that you didn't mind and didn't mind and then a little later that you minded and then that you thought things could have maybe not been like a can of cold tuna left behind a curtain and the books which lie unread like underwear unworn on a special occasion because the comfy comic ones fit your too wide for doorways hips better and the way that ace of bass track is spooling out the cassette tape and you you've got a pencil on your birthday and a mug of cold tea and you're trying to get it all back in. Um, one of the reasons why I started writing poetry is because my English teacher, Mrs Collins, she was a very excellent English teacher, told me that poets were people who um, were able to understand their own feelings and to articulate them into poems, and that was a very constructive way to use teenage feelings. Um, so I started writing poems, and I've been writing poems for quite a while, and I can officially now say that that is total and utter bollocks. Um, I've recently been dating a very, very nice guy, and um, he came to stay on Valentine's weekend, which you think would be the perfect time to tell somebody that you really like them. But actually, I just took the piss out of him all weekend, and I didn't say one single nice thing to him all weekend. I just said things like, your friends are a bit rubbish, and things like that. It was completely unnecessary. Um, and so I've written him a poem, um, but I actually haven't given it to him yet. Instead, I'm just going to read it to you, and I hope that he somehow knows that I do actually like him. It's called On the Day You Came to Stay. On the day you came to stay, I said some really stupid shit, like, doesn't this toast all chewed up look just like vomit, and I don't really care when your birthday is? But actually... I was thinking that touch is a kind of static. That having sex accommodates the sum total of 46 desire football fields, that your lips are like lists, and that all the endorphins make my skin sensitive while I'm asleep. But if images outlast what they show, then the slow photographic swivel of the brain lens crops on the backdrop, and in front of cathedral gates, a woman is given the things that she needs, a man is collecting tomb inscriptions, and the girl offers her breasts like surveillance. And apparently, there are 50 dresses that change the world. 12 people you should be afraid of. Five friends, seven stories, and one lover who actually fits. And apparently, on the day you came to stay, I saw lip imprints on door frames, relaxed the muscle clusters in my eyelids, and I said some really stupid shit. The thing is, I knew that trying to stop touching would be like air dusting, that I'm really defensive, that getting to know me is a little bit like kissing backwards. But I think it's important that you know I've stopped playing politics. I'm stepping down the security. I've even taken the doorman off the cathedral of feelings. Um, I'm going to do a poem now because Rian asked me to do it, so I'm going to completely blow off my whole set list. It's um, a poem which I, I wrote for my mum because um, 
I gave my mum a bit of a hard time when we were growing up for the alternative upbringing decisions that she made for us. Like, I definitely didn't want casserole. I definitely didn't want all my clothes to be made out of canvas. I wanted to... <laughs> I wanted to watch so much TV that I got square eyes. I wanted all my food to be frozen and I wanted my shoes to have Velcro on them and things like that. So I've written this poem for her by way of basically saying, like, actually, if I had kids, I'd probably make all the same decisions for them that she made for us. It's called Skin Flint. My mother used her skin like flint. Said she hadn't shaved her legs since Patti Smith got on stage and pissed on pop poster smiles. She, she cut our hair in Lego lines, sung us pretty vacant from the toilet seat. She left the door open while she got changed and she got us used to no bra breasts. She said, some people will say that they've got no love to lose, but actually, everybody's got too much. And that's why only sometimes you will notice that learning's tough. She picked us up from our classmates' houses, tall and lean in her cold black jeans, cycled us home while we bored traffic lights bickling on about Sylvanians and micro-machines. She let us leave our hair in shampoo steeples, race out naked with towels like kites. She held our bath-pickled fingers while we clamoured to report school fights, and she never said that she hated hairspray or the way that we later piled on blush. She let us figure it out our own way and learn that sometimes skin is enough. Um, I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna do a poem for my dad. <laughs> and that was the one that was planned. I don't normally go, these are all for my parents. Um, but this is a poem for my dad, um, who's a surveyor, and I've kind of used surveying terms throughout well, most of the poem. Um, and I wrote for my dad because I think sometimes people who are very solid in people's lives don't get the applause that they deserve, so this is a poem for him. It's called He Hoped to Keep the Mortar Sturdy. The surveyor was sleeping, eyes mansard, mouth gabled, snores monopitch. He dreamt that he built a house on a cliff face and every morning woke early to offer gifts to the sea of kitchen towels, hairbrushes and cutlery. When he woke, he told his wife about how he'd checked for leaks, how he'd knuckled the north wall to ask if it was fake. He told her that the house had replied in that sighing way that houses have. She turned her bargeboard shoulder over and in a blink reminded him that their roof was safe that love could live in a lean-to. Um, I'm from Essex, and it's taking me a very long time to actually be willing to tell people I'm from Essex. When people ask me where I'm from, I go, Cambridge. It's really close to Essex. We've still got Cambridge postcode. Um, but I wrote this poem as kind of a coming-out poem about the fact that I am from Essex, and in order to open my life up to more Essex girl jokes, because I definitely don't have enough of them already. Um, so this is called Essex versus the rest of the world. Seemed like... A good idea last week, meeting Christine Singh, as the last time was in 1993 and she was sick in the Burger King bin. Walking there, you think about bottles of 2020 and her lip gloss telling everyone that Tom Russell dumped you because you wouldn't suck him, and to her, it was as easy as winning Twister. And when she gets up off the grass to greet you, the prints on her legs are hieroglyphics and her velour shorts are in places they shouldn't be. She pings them out with an index and grins, and 
It's awkward and you wish you'd worn more makeup as you somehow feel unfinished and she's sort of upsetting but interesting. So in between squinting and jokes with origins, we look at the common and we tell each other things in long chain fagging linkings. The bedsits, the outfits, the unbelievable comedy and the story of how the still clear things like knowing faded like velvet and made us in increments thick as babies. Unreal and it's easy to remember as song lyrics. You don't want to be sinking, so you sing the story so that you're winning. You say, remember when we used to set fire to things that we thought were interesting? Oh God, she says, it could all be so beautiful if it wasn't so boring. And when she says, I heard you broke your heart again, talk about a pattern of losing. We're at the fairground on the waltzer and we don't know yet how much everything is costing and we couldn't give a shit. We're Essex versus the rest of the world, setting fire to things, becoming interesting. Does <laughs> um, anybody here work in an office? Hey, you do. Oh, of course you do. I know where you work. I've been in your office. It's very lovely. Um, this is for you, Martin Vigura. It's called About Working in an Office. You won't find the filing cabinets under your desk. They're on the roof. Comment edited with bird shit and ash, and I can tell you, my forearms pulsed with the grey weight of maths. I thought about going back, but my feet got a system on the stairs and the paper diary relieved itself into the sky system like tax back in December. Double check your crib sheet. There is no mark scheme for the things that I did last week. The way I woke up wearing nothing but two eyes dressed like dignitaries. I high-fived the bin man, made muppets out of mittens, and in a bookshop left a kiss in every copy of self-justifications of a prick tease. I wrapped spreadsheets round my wrists. And in the evening, made out like a data medusa, neon snaking text off each hip. I placed trust in the fist of a cold, hard bitch. Sent a small me to a squat party without a taxi fee back to somebody who knows how to make a lever arch file click properly. The truth is that I actually like lists. I like scaring chaos. Shit this. Um, next one I'm going to read you. I overheard um, a conversation that somebody was having and started writing down bits of it. And um, I thought when I got home, I looked at my note, but that's a poem. I'm going to make that into a poem. And this past week I've been working with the director on my show and I thought I would email him some examples of my work ahead of head of working with him and I emailed him this poem and it turns out that the show that I reference in it he actually wrote and <laughs> I'm taking the piss out of it <laughs> he emailed me back and said are you are you taking the piss out of me and I was like no sorry um so yeah it's called let's talk about the end of everything there is someone through fear of lack of fossil fuel has bought a canoe and filled it with tinned things 
I won't go that way. Tomorrow, I'm going to buy a bow and arrow. I'm going to make a schedule. Tuesdays, kill crows and squirrels in community gardens. Wednesdays, find fallen masonry and build a bunker. My friend John Spooner made a show called The Ethics of Progress. It was all about application and development of quantum physics. In case you're interested, superpositioning is the process of entangling two particles. Basically, the maths means that they've proved that if we map a body and if we transport something from A to B without moving anything in between, we will have disproved the soul and that will be excellent. And I know, I know, the first person to be transported will probably die. But if you weigh the body after death, they say it's a little bit lighter anyway. And the scientists aren't just Jamie Oliver dropping spaghetti onto weighing machines. They've done experiments in little lab galleries. Family members waiting in biscuit-coloured refectories, talking about the cracks that let the light in. And hearing the statistics isn't reassuring. The weight of the soul is 21 grams, scribbled on the back of TV time subscriptions. And even in the hospitals, the interns snogging by the x-ray machine. The married doctors fucking in cupboards, they're all trying to tessellate disbelief. And if we keep developing the explaining and then we train the explainers to articulate to the theorists, it will all get very academic and evidenced and that will be excellent. The National Geographic will have a new nostalgia. Photos of us staring up at static, the space in between systems. Shopping baskets filled with excellent tinned things. Uh, this poem's called Certain Things, and it's about certain things that we all do wrong and don't tell other people about. Certain things. You carry them until someone offers to share the suitcase, and with the offer, makes you responsible for their feelings. You've thrown in the basics and you've made it quite clear that you never promised to be perfect. Certain things don't have a home in your head, so they wait at the airport carrying suitcases, wanting tickets out to, look, there's this thing that I did. Certain things thrum between us, sin silent, rearranging the mantelpiece, writing postcards, buying bouquets. Certain things you can't help touching, even though the slightest finger stroke would give you cancer of the morals, so you write an I did this and you stick it to the fridge. Certain things make you want to pick up the phone and then throw the fucker out the window because talking's too cryptic, so you piss Morse code, do semaphore and sign language. Certain things are only true if you say so. Certain people are sorry for the accident. Certain things are only true if everyone knows they're true. Certain accidents are only sorry they got caught. Certain accidents will say, by the way, here's my luggage. Um, I'm going to do a poem that I haven't done for a really long time that I always really enjoy reading. Um, don't try and follow the sense of it, because it's <laughs> about the images in it, it's like, imagine you're looking at four lit up windows of a tower block and you can kind of move between all the different walls and spy on everything that's going on in everybody's bedrooms. Um, yeah. The voyage out begins in bathrooms where fleshy girls in bubbled water sink back, serenely considering skincare and diet routines to make them torter. But 
all hot things grow cold. And their silly putty skin reminds them that they're growing old, slowly blotting out the bathroom porcelain. This one sighs like a city and watches her fingers clench and unclench instead of her breasts, which are quite unpretty as two avocados freckle-drenched with vinegar. She wants to be given a room which is only hers. She'd like it to be pink as a womb. She'd like you to look only inside her pink pod womb, where the walls like chewed cheeks are dented with the brains of mirror twins. One twin makes an amino promise to be a home and tries to keep its tail plain umbilical string out the way of the other pink prawn who although already has plans to screaming excrete into the world by the time he's born will not be breathing. But for now, their free wheeling flesh ovals padding out their beeswing skin and to one, the other's existence will be anecdotal and he'll search to find a partner whose hair mirror whirls it will end in disaster. Next door, the bathwater whirls away disaster. It's an end of sorts for Claude. She writes down that it's like looking in the eye of a duck and leaving it to fend for itself after sucking all the fluid from its beak. She dresses in a shift of drake green silk, quickly sucks a peach and three glasses of milk. Her plain plate face grins like the post poker spread across the mat and a bright red balloon of adrenaline makes her sneak like a polecat which has a sad and beautiful hunger and marks her out as a luck hunter. The marks of a luck hunter are on the inside. They can also be found in the clustered blue-brown pigments of an eye like two keys missing from a ring or two whales lost deep in sea guts. They sing and sing and sing until ship's creels creak and snap, leaving twin timbers upon which two small prawn babies sleep with not a whimper or a clue as to how deep into the voyage they might be. Uh, this is the last one I'm going to do. Um, it's called This Is Just To Say. This is just to say that the girl can't help it. The cloak and dagger admittance, the, excuse me, the edge of chivalry, the affectation of the contrite, the, I did it. And... I have been to night school for weeks to learn the manners needed to negotiate a release, the I'm standing here with a key on my tongue, lobbing the apology grenade, that bomb thing which can tie dignity back to some sort of meaning. The status symbol that pretends to be humbling. There's something so quintessentially British about cuffing rudeness off the table like margarine but thinking actually Fuck this. I want to drown in a big cup of sin. Why not open the door to a house that you lived in? Chair a meeting with yourself where only you can tell you that you look good in contrition. And if it's too challenging, get a <coughs> consultant in. 
a strategist, an analyst, someone who does spreadsheets. Get them to do a risk assessment, a performance development review, a calculation of your investment opportunities. Why not a production team? A whole load of grumpy looking people wearing black t-shirts who can make shit happen. Then hand the show over to a director whose spine is like a pound sign. Take the hit to Broadway and stare up at the heading, I'm sorry, the musical in big red neon. Set some targets, get some buy-in. Ring Jerry Springer to say that you think he makes reconciliation look easy and it's not. And you just thought he might like to do some further research. That absurd, absurd little word with its repetitions can change a serial monogamist into a I've, I've never been kissed. Learn to love but not wearing a heart guard and be afraid because those other humans are so close and you are accountable for their feelings. Throw the grenade and wait for the sublime between I'm sorry and you're forgiven if it happens like that. Until then, hang off hope glyphs. Sing a song about apology being the hope of hope. Keep the rope hanging down in kindness. Says the sorry fucker, the human being, the girl who can't help it. This is just to say Forgive me. The plums were delicious. And I really, really mean it. Thanks. That was the superb Squirt, 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 Hannah Walker. Um, if you want to see more on her stuff, her website is launching very soon. It's hannahjanewalker.co.uk. So check that out. Uh, now it's time for our visiting power all the way from Bridge End in Wales. It is my great delight to present to you Rian Edwards. It's all a bit of a parlour gig now, isn't it? Which is quite nice. I've got loads of new material, and because none of you know me, you wouldn't know the difference anyway, which is great. Um, but I'm going to start off with some poems, um, yes, that I do know. And um, um, are you all writers? Can you, can you put your hand up if you're a writer? Yeah. Put your hand up if you're published. No, no, no. no. <laughs> 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 uh, I machine gun fire you with the microphone. Um, okay. Ah, okay. oh, writers, writers. Okay. When the most in interesting... I, I'm actually littler than you thought. <laughs> I cannot do it. Silla. Come on, Okay. One of the most interesting things to observe, I think, is people's relationship with time. And the best way I think you can observe this is when they're waiting. And also one of the best places to do this is at airports. So I, 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 this poem kind of came to fruition at an airport. It's called Outcast Hours and it goes like this. White light weighs heavy. Bullying bright as squash courts. I fix 
a dirty look on the electric clock. The walled minutes stagger their blinks. Wheel-footed suitcases scurry about me like clueless dogs, while flip-flops tick-tock against the polished rink of the concourse. One girl's patience is vivid, measured by the careful brush strokes of plumb on her toenails, the soft turning of pages. Her boyfriend hibernates, his legs stretch out before him. Ankles crossed, he wags his foot, conducting his concert of sleep. A ponytailed mother raises an eye for her wandering son. She scoops him up and breathes in his scalp, in chase of a smell that is running away from her. The antique couple are butchering time. Their teeth tear through baguettes, raining faded confetti onto open laps. Shy of games and companions, fidgeting in plastic bone chairs, we comb the air for that splintered voice dictating when our sky will ship us. I love this. I'm like, can I put my hands in my pockets? Because I have a dress with pockets and it's the best thing in the world. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'll do this. I, always feel, I, I do kind of like feel like a kid at assembly most of the time. Like this. But um, yeah, I'll start like this. This is, this, is, this is an old poem, but I think it's kind of my favourite. So it's called Tiptoe. I wander dreamless through your dialogues, the ephemera of affection. I trape shoeless through these dialects, these contentious claims to passions. I press these brittle souls upon the fire-lit blistered coals, upon the stain that broke the glass, upon the eggshells and kid gloves. And through the splinters, flints and shards, I forged these uneroded paths. And yet I tiptoe through your daydreams, the outcast your trances toyed at night. And meanwhile, buoyed by moons and frozen sheets, I thumped the thinning ice. So I meander through the arid, abandoning beds where I've expired. I'm walking dead to you, bereft of you, with crumbs of poems left of you, armed with a memory now for forgetting you. And so I wander seamless through this monologue, my forever of affection. I traipse boot-laced in my idiolect, my unchampioned claims to passions. So you can tear this infrastructure, this composure cannot flounder. And with the toughness of magnolia, the cold robustness of a character that seems to make and somehow merit me as my mother's goddamn daughter. For I'm my walker, I'm my soldier, I'm my legion and stigmata. And with the foot bind of a concubine, I'll still march on and over. For there's no man, no situation worth the shame to ever call for. And yet I tiptoe through your daydreams. And still I tiptoe through your daydreams. And when that thought has passed, have I left my mark? No, not even a footprint of me now remains.
Okay, this is a brand new poem. Do you want to hear it? Only my house has heard this poem. <laughs> and it hated it. And, um, it's quite funny, because you did a poem about your father sleeping, and your dad's a surveyor. And this is also about my father sleeping, and he's an estate agent. It was like the set was meant to happen. <laughs> you know? And it's called Traveller. And I'm still working on this, so this is kind of like a work in progress. Traveller. The broken stem of the driveway and the terracotta jigsaw of the flower pots you run over are the last leg of returning home to find you tucked inside a frame of French windows, slumped and stolid, your head bowed down to your chest. Even dead to the world, you clutch fast to your glass of red like the sleeping knight's hand that knows peace on the hilt of his sword. You are blue bleached as a statue in the grasping flicker of the evening's television. You remain staunch and untouched by my locked out cords, my knuckles beating on glass. Um, I write a lot of love poems, actually, which I th it's getting me down, to be honest. <laughs> Gotta find another subject matter. And um, these, are, these are three very small poems in kind of one, one section. So if you want to applaud, do it at the end, not in between, because they, they don't deserve it in between. And I think most of us can relate to this. It kind of goes from um, the first kiss to first night. Right? Strangers. As well. Strangers are for remembering how our mouth works. The liquid shapes, the gurn of a kiss. The mind can't help but narrate the action of an imprecise hand finding its way about you. Second one. Eiffel. Looking me dizzy, licking me drunk, in the face of our nudity, I am not nearly naked enough. Three, after. I empty my room of last night. I tread barefoot about the house, opening every window Telling myself I'm airing the place. I fill up the kettle, forget what for, and wander away, and find myself in a mirror looking for something to pluck. <laughs> Do you want a song? Yes. This is a brand new song, and I've never performed it before. And I don't know how to keep up the ukulele, Mr. Clare. How do you do it? You can tie a key bit of string to it if you so wish. Yeah? Because I was kind of like, I was doing a bit of this, and you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of like leg stance. But, um, okay. Ha ha. It's so funny, because when Luke first met me, I was, I was writing songs for the ukulele, and then I stopped, and then I wrote songs for the guitar, and then I had like special effects for the guitar, and then I got bored of the guitar. So then I've kind of relearned the ukulele. 
And um, this song doesn't have a title, so if anyone has a good one, please, please proffer it. And um, yeah, I think it goes like this. Oh no, it doesn't go like that at all. <laughs> I lie. Okay. Oh, I got it. I'm not, sh I'm not used to this at all. Um. Did you ever say This is a hugger Worth fighting for Would you ever say This is a and it goes like this. He rusts my blood, 
cadavers my skin, sweating a smile, a jaundice-licked grin. Hit curled and fetal, trembling lid blind, a mock of saliva scratched teeth down my spine, while a nocturne of moths bat wings in my belly, my heart red and fisted thumps its cage to betray me. Please hush now this heart to dumben this breath, muffle the whimpers, the drippings of sweat, claw back the tears and gnaw off this tongue, and quiver the jaw, says you're this lung. Die me a death to deprive me of sense, maim me or sleep me, let the horror be silent. I wish I had light-hearted poems to kind of come after that. But yeah, but to leave that with you and let it sink. Okay. Um, oh, I'll do this. Does anybody know who Dorothy Parker is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah put your hands up. Are you published? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wait up. Oh, that's going to be my running gag, isn't it? You know? Who are you? Where do you come from? What do you do? Are you published? Yeah. Um, when I first started um, reading poetry and reading my own poetry, I wasn't very confident using my own voice. And um, so I used to mimic other voices and stuff. And one of them I found I could do was Dorothy Parker's, and I was a massive fan of hers. And then I started writing poems in her voice. And um, okay, do you want to hear? <laughs> okay, do you want to hear a Dorothy Parker poem? Or do you want to hear my poem in her voice? Yeah, both. You want both? Yeah. Okay. I don't know this title, the title of this Dorothy Parker poem, but it is my favourite. And it goes like this. <laughs> I do not like my state of mind. I'm bitter, querulous, and unkind. I hate my legs, I hate my hands. I do not yearn for lovelier lands. I dread the dawn's recurrent light. I hate to go to bed at night. I snoot at simple, earnest folk. I cannot take the gentlest joke. I find no peace in paint or type. My world is but a lot of tripe. I'm disillusioned, empty-breasted. For what I think, I'll be arrested. I am not sick. I am not well. My quantum dreams are shot to hell. My soul is crushed, my spirit sore. I do not like me anymore. I careful, quarrel, grumble, grouse. I ponder on the narrow house. I shudder at the thought of men. I'm due to fall in love again. <laughs> I'll do another poem and then I'll do a Dorothy Parker poem. That's how I'll do it. 
Um, do give me the slashing gesture as well, because I'm not. I'm completely disorganised with the set. Okay. I'm getting friends. I will. I will. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, right. I'm obsessed with dead couples. Obsessed. Fucking <laughs> obsessed. Not like properly dead, lying in a coffin, but just kind of redundant, expired couples. I just can't stop writing about them. You know? My God. And the one thing I found was very interesting, um, two friends of mine, who their girlfriend, long-term girlfriends, left them pretty much simultaneously, completely unrelated. But what was quite interesting is they, they remained in the house. And what was quite interesting was how the house changed immediately after the girlfriend left. And in both cases, it was very similar. And so this is a kind of convergence of these two incidences. And does anybody know what the word pinchbeck means? Anyone? Anyone? Spielberg? Anyone? <laughs> and, um, pinchbeck is, a, is, is a, it's kind of like a form of false gold. It's kind of like a kind of fool's gold type thing. But it's a kind of counterfeit. And um, it's called Pinchbeck, and it goes like this. The house is a counterfeit of itself. The kitchen keeps scouring its surfaces, and the crockery is forever getting soiled and plunging in and out of the basin. Different tea bags press against the window of the jar. The tangerine tablecloth has buckled under the strain folded into a fraction of, of itself and gone into hiding in the charity bag. A lilac square lies sprawled in its place, a cartoon of flying cups and saucers. It seems the basement study has let itself go, got into a scrap with your papers and left the drawers gasping for air. You can't blame it, really, what with only a slit of garden to look at. It's a wonder a word was ever penned here. Your bedroom has lost its, bo its bottles, colours, her smell that got into everything. There are no trinkets scattered around the mirror, no face powder dusting the wood. Her hanging rail has been picked to the bones and wears only the white wall behind it. Dorothy Parker. Dorothy Parker. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay, this is a poem I wrote in her voice. And it's called Penetrative Discourse. I'm actually getting gradually drunker, which is very kind of relevant. Um, and it goes like this. Because I, I, I can handle the white, the white wine glass when I'm doing Dorothy Parker, you see, because it's in character. <laughs> Tonight my rhetoric is running on empty And well to be perfectly honest it ain't running at all Instead it's nursing inebria and candid remarks Irresponsibly imparted the night before Tonight I'm all out of my idiolect and your signature wit it used to hang on my every like chimps on a twig. I mean, look at you. <laughs> on the edge of your seats, metaphoric, of course, impatiently awaiting some sardonic retort. I mean, what is this conversation to you anyway? 
repartee tennis or a derisory blood sport? Feeling unindulged now, are we? <laughs> Deflated by a distinct absence of eloquence. Well, I bid you adieu, my insignificant others, because I've done my hard time. I've completed my sentence. <laughs> So, you just let me carry on, Luke, when you indefinitely. <laughs> um, I would, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do you want to hear? I had a haunted room. Do you want to hear about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you know Agnes? How many of you know Agnes Meadows? Yeah, I do. Right. She's a poetry organiser, right? I confided in her about this haunted bedroom. <laughs> And she said, if I did this gig, she would exorcise my bedroom. Did she fucking do it? Did she buggery? Not a, like, the God of Lord commands you. No crucifixes, nothing. She didn't even visit the house. This was a properly haunted bedroom, and I am, I am pretty much with it. And I'm cynical, and I'm sceptical, and this room was haunted as fuck. Simple as that. And originally, the title of this poem was the actual address of where I lived, and I thought my landlord might sue me, so I made it a bit more generic. <laughs> and now it's called Shardalos Road, which is in Broccoli. Don't move there. And, um, okay. And lots of weird shit happened, and basically, for the last few months, I had to sleep with the light on, because it was just getting ridiculous. And it goes a bit like this. It is not the long dressing gown that hangs from the hook, drifting towards the bed. It is not the bra slung over the chair, its twin moonlit cups shining like the scalps of babies. It is not the shuffling of cards beneath the mattress, the whisperings, the white spider disappearing into the grain of the wood. It is not this room's countless faces that make this sleep brittle and unsafe and keep me pouring at the air for the lamp switch. No, it is the blanket that buries and surrounds me that is suddenly taken to breathing in spite of me. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe got nothing on me. Nothing. Right. Okay. I've got, have I got a light-hearted poem? <laughs> okay, yes, I do. Um, mm. God, sorry. That's Karen Fraz. Okay, this girl, this girl I went to school with, I've done this poem forever. And, um, yes, she was incredible. She was... You know how you basically go to school with certain people and they should have been the most popular people because they were so wonderfully eccentric but completely unappreciated. And it takes you 20 years later to write a poem about them for you to realise, they're fucking brilliant. <laughs> and um, this girl was that. It's called Petra. And it goes like this. Remember when Tomo found the library and fingered out that Blue Peter classic, Petra, A Dog for All Seasons? That title clung to you like a kick-me sign, sticky tape to the back of your blazer. You took your pseudonym well, though, stormed the school like Boudicca, 
all matronly bounce and mucky blonde hair, a dirty fat smile for the corridors, and purple Doc Martins tipexed with stars. Both your parents were vicars. <laughs> Built like polar bears and born in their cardigans. <laughs> they let you say fucking before everything. Even blessed you with the biggest room in the vicarage. And you got your own kettle and tea bags, which made you practically an adult. But how did you sleep in that room Petra Hawks were? Amongst the spread eagle sheet music, the straggle of elephantine bras and unwanted pants that puddled the floor. It was a wonder you could revise in your circus of baby-oiled men chewing them tacked to the walls. <laughs> Remember the night of the Harvest Festival, when your soprano solo made the music teacher weep. At David Newman's party at his father's hotel, you came into your own, realised the Petra you hankered for. That was the night your boobs came out to play. <laughs> you got off with the room. Snog hacked a thoroughfare from kitchen to lounge. You fell to your knees in the garden and in the cold grass earned your fellatio wings. <laughs> Okay, I've got, I got to tell you this, right? Petra was a legend, obviously, you can tell. I had to change the surname. And um, that night at David Newman's party, which I wasn't invited to because I was so not cool enough anyway, um, she got off with, I think it was 15 blokes and one girl and gave three blowjobs, right? And because I grew up in Matlock, very small kind of like village town, um, Guess what they called her on Monday? A lesbian! <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you can't even make that shit up, can you? Do I have... How much... I, I have no idea my time. Pictures. We talked about it. We talked about it. Oh. Okay, right. 
So I'll sing right. <laughs> what kind of conductor are you? Playing with your bum What's and holding a lager glass. That's not, your hands are not right, free. Keeping this with me. Okay. Glass me with. Okay. Right. Okay. So this is the chorus, and basically it's by. Why not make it a goodbye? That's pretty simple, isn't it? So it kind of goes a bit like this. Wave your hands. <laughs> Why not make it a goodbye? Bye. Why not make it a goodbye? Stand up, John. Written on it 